0: The scripture this morning is from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Lori. Good morning, everybody. He is risen. All right, we're getting better. I'll report back to Cody. So 27 and a half years of marriage it took me to finally get to sing in a choir with my wife. First time ever. That was really exciting. Um, there was some trouble during rehearsal making sure that the mic was arranged so that it never picked me up, but that's okay. I I enjoyed wearing my white shirt and singing in there. A couple of uh, quick um, announcements. Uh, By the way, if you're new here, we are glad that you are here. We understand uh, on a Sunday like this, uh, a lot of people are are new to a particular church or maybe they're new to church or they haven't been in church in a long, long time, and we understand that, and it's, it's a new experience for you. Uh, perhaps and and we just want to let you know that we are truly honored and privileged that you would be here today and we're we're glad that you've taken a little bit of time out to uh, uh, be with us and to uh, hear about the resurrection and hear about Jesus and to celebrate that with us so I want to acknowledge that we're really glad that you're here thank you for being here a couple of little affairs to take care of before we get started uh, first of all uh, we were continuing this morning to collect the Lent offering. Um, Josh, who is the executive—he's standing way in the back there. He's the executive director of um, Community and Global Initiatives for Redemption Church. Uh, he sent us an email uh, late this week that said that it, really he was just absolutely blown away, and so was the Women's Refugee Health Clinic, absolutely blown away by the generosity of this church—the the amount of diapers and wipes and laundry detergent and all that stuff that. Uh, that you have contributed. We want to thank you very much for that, and the, and the Women's Refugee Health uh, Clinic uh, also thanks you for that. That was really tremendous. Also want to remind you, uh, in your bulletin, starting a week from this Wednesday, on April 15th, just after you get your taxes done, there are two classes that are starting here at Redemption Church. They will meet uh, in, in, uh, in this building here. So there's a class for women, and then there's a class that uh, Cody and... Um, and Josh, are going to be teaching on how to live the Bible for all of it's worth. So please sign up for that, though. It would help us if you would sign up because uh, we're going to be providing meals and, and dinner for people that come to that. So it would be helpful uh, if you could do that for us. So obviously the big idea today is the resurrection. And so in, in, a, in a simple sentence or two simple sentences, it would be this. Jesus is the resurrection, and that is everything. And we're going we're gonna to read a lot today. I'm going to talk a lot as usual, but we're also going to read a lot from uh, the Scriptures. We're going to read uh, almost all of John, John chapter 11, the Gospel of John. So you can turn there. Uh, what Lori read from was out of John chapter 20. We're also going to read all of John chapter 20 today. And, and essentially what we're going to do is we're going to preview the resurrection with the story of Lazarus's raising in John chapter 11, but Jesus uses that as an opportunity to teach on the resurrection, which was still a very uh, muddy and, and difficult concept for people to understand, especially about the Messiah at that time. So he's going to preview the resurrection for us in John chapter 11, and then we'll look at the real eternal resurrection in John uh, chapter 20. And uh, I want to give you a little bit of context for John chapter 11. This is very important to help understand some of the early parts of Of John chapter eleven, in John chapter ten, Jesus had been teaching in and around uh, Judah, so he'd been in and around Jerusalem a little bit. And the professional religious people were very unhappy with his teaching. And then at one point in verse thirty-one, Jesus says something that that absolutely blows the professional religious people away—the the 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 the, the Pharisees and all of those guys. Uh, He he said, "I and the Father, we are one." Uh, So. In the Greek, it's even more emphatic. He he says, "Yahweh, God, the Lord, and I are the exact same essence. We're the same." He's making a claim that he is God, and immediately, um, the the Pharisees and the and all the professional religious people picked up stones to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill him right there, but he was able to escape, and he went away from there. We are told in the scriptures, and where he went. Was back across the Jordan, which is east of the Jordan River. So he's in this um, area that's known as the Decapolis when when uh, John chapter 11 gets started. And so I'm just going to start reading uh, these passages, and we'll unpack it a little bit as it previews uh, the resurrection. These first 16 verses, I will admit to you, there are some areas of these first 16 verses that don't make a whole lot of sense. And so hopefully we'll be able to uh, kind of explain some of that. So John writes these words. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill So Mary Martha and Lazarus are siblings. They're all related and they are very good friends of Jesus's They're They're close friends of his they uh, Jesus certainly care about these uh, three people. So the sister sent him saying Lord He whom you love is ill. Remember, Jesus loves Lazarus, and he loves Mary and Martha. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In, in other words, th- this is an odd response that he would give. Normally, as a pastor, when I hear that somebody is ill, generally what they want is they want me to come right away and, and maybe there's something I can do right away. Jesus is a, the ultimate pastor, the, the ultimate shepherd, and, and yet he says, ah, don't worry about it, let's just stay here. But there's a reason why I'm going to be staying here. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved it. This is the second time now we see that he has great affection for them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, He does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. It sounds like Jesus is speaking in riddles here, right? What is all this light and stumbling and the light of the day and all of that stuff? Well, earlier in John, Jesus had made the proclamation that he is the light of the world. It's a double entendre of sorts. In other words, there's a double meaning here. Uh, This also, the light also references the fact that in their culture, uh, there was no electricity. And so the only time you could get work done was by the light of day, which was generally around 12 hours. Anybody who tried to work at night would stumble and they would not do their work very well. And they would be obstructed and there would be distractions. And so essentially what he's saying is I'm the light of the world and my work, my job is to go back to Jerusalem eventually, to go back to Judah so that I will be crucified so that I might be raised again to newness of life so that you would also be heirs with me in the resurrection, be sons and daughters of God. So he's speaking a little bit in riddles, but he's making the claim that this is my job this is what I've been called to. This is my mission and purpose for even being here in the first place. And then he gives them this idea that, that, um, uh, that Lazarus has fallen asleep. But again, he's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking a little bit in, in riddles and the disciples don't get it. Now Jesus had spoken, uh, I'm sorry, verse 12. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death but they thought he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we might die with him. You got to love Thomas. This has just been, this is his attitude throughout all of the gospels. He's He's, again, the Greek is, is actually constructed a little bit more differently. You can almost see the way the Greek is that Thomas kind of throwing his arms and shoulders up and, and, and literally saying, this is what the Greek, let us go with him and if we die, we die. <laughs> Cast caution to the wind, we're going with Jesus. It doesn't matter, let's go and see what happens, okay? So that's kind of Thomas' attitude. Now, go back to verse 15. I want you to see that. Uh, Jesus is not afraid, to teach us that sometimes bad things are going to happen to us so that better things might work out, so that good things might come of it. And we don't like this very much. We don't, we don't like it. when Every time something bad happens to us, our circumstances aren't right. We're in challenging times. We're in tribulation. We challenge God with that. God, why are you doing this with me? God, if you just get me out of this circumstance. God, work your whatever it is that you're going to work and, and get me out of this suffering, out of this pain. But God says... As, uh, through James, actually, in his letter, he says, no, 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 no. The testing of your faith is going to produce perseverance and something good can be worked out of this. Paul says in Romans 8, and we know all God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But we struggle with that. But even right here, he says, the reason Lazarus died is so that the glory of the Son of God might be shown and so that people might believe that I am the one who came, that I am the Messiah. And that's why we are called to trust. The word, the one word in the Gospel of John that if you wanted to name the Gospel of John after it, it would be the word believe. And it's it's a Greek word that is translated not only as believe, but also trust and have faith in or commit to. All of those things. Trust, have faith in, commit to. The problem with trust, though, and the problem with having faith is that if there, are, if there isn't any unknown, if there isn't any risk, then it really isn't trust. It really isn't faith. But you and I, what we want is absolutely no uncertainty. We want no ambiguity. We want to know exactly what's going to happen. And we want it written out, and we want it in contract form before we even do it. And Jesus says, no, you, you need to believe. You need, you need to trust. You need to have faith. That's what you're called for. Otherwise, it's not trust. So these next 11 verses now, Jesus goes, and this is a preview to the resurrection. Jesus uses a raising, this raising of Lazarus, to teach about his resurrection. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now that's a long time. He's dead. You, You need to understand that. Every now and then, I'll run into somebody who will actually say something along the lines of this. That was 2,100 years ago. They really didn't understand how to quantify or know that somebody was dead back then. No, people died. They knew he was dead. They didn't take a live guy, throw him in a, in a cave, and close the thing with a stone and go, huh, hey, good luck. You no, know, he's dead, okay? He's in, he is absolutely dead, and he's been in there for four days. That's important to remember. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when, Mary, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated at the house. And again, I, I want you to understand a little bit of context here. This is important for us. I, I do a lot of memorial services as a pastor. I understand them. Uh, w- there 's there's some mourning, and we gather and we we have this service, and then afterwards we might eat a little bit and and uh, have a little reception and, and But then pretty much in our culture, everybody just kind of goes on their way and and we 're really all supposed to just sort of get over it that 's kind of the way we we handle it in their culture. They would mourn for days and weeks, sometimes even months and the and the eating and the and the organizing of, of get-togethers, and the celebration of the life would, would go on and on and on. So this is not unusual that everybody's still hanging around um, at this time with Mary and, and Martha. So Martha goes out to, to, to meet Jesus, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I've always read that as slightly accusatory, Not just sort of wondering, but like she's kind of going, you know, you stayed there a couple extra days. I don't understand. What were you playing golf? I don't get it. You know, you could have come. You could have saved my brother. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is an odd response trying to console somebody whose brother has just died. I think he's giving a little bit of a theological lesson here. And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This may sound cold and abrupt, but there are times when in the midst of grief, the best response is to give a little bit of a theological lesson. Sometimes that's exactly what somebody needs to hear. Martha says, if only, and Jesus decides he's gonna show his love to Martha with firmness. Now remember, twice already in this text, we've seen that Jesus loves them. He loves them. He's doing this out of love. Sometimes we struggle to be able to see that. John Stott, who has written on this and has preached on this, says that Jesus, you could even describe him as a bit stern here. He's a little bit stern. It's as if Jesus might be sensing that Martha wants to use uh, Jesus and Lazarus and everything for her agenda, but Jesus is teaching that there's a grander and a larger agenda here. So Stott says this. I think this is important for us to hear. He says Jesus has a love that is both jealous and thunderous. It's a love that is both cognitive and affective. It's a love that thinks and a love that feels and has passion. It's a two-sided love. And he says this is the jealous love here that Jesus is showing. It's the logical love love that he's showing to Martha. And I know you and I don't like that word jealous or jealousy. We, we, don't, we see that as a negative. We see that as possessive. We see that as, as unhealthy. But the Bible doesn't see the word jealous this way, especially when it talks about the love of God for us. Love, uh, God loves us with a jealous love. And, and I want to suggest that everybody in this room, at one time or another, has loved jealously. You have loved in a way that merely wants what is best for the object of your love, for the one that you love, right? you've loved that way. You see somebody heading down the wrong path and you go to them and you may speak to them sternly and you may give them words that they don't necessarily want to hear. In fact, they may reject you and even tell you, you must not love me if you're telling me that. I don't want to be around you anymore if you're going to challenge me in this way, but you are actually doing it out of love. You and I love jealously as well. We know how to love like this. In the Bible, this jealous love means that it's what's best for the one you love. And God loves us jealously. He he loves us jealously because he knows that all of these other false gods that you and I are chasing, all of these other worldviews, all of these things that we think are going to bring us fulfillment that are not necessarily bad things. I'm not here to bash relationships and romance and and, and uh, wealth and jobs and education and, and all of those things. I'm not, I'm not here to, to say that those things are bad, but when we decide to take those things and make them the things that ultimately will fulfill us rather than God through his son Jesus Christ, now we have become idol worshipers. We are worshiping false gods and false gods never fail to fail. They will always let us down. They will always destroy us. They are always bad for us if we ask them to do things for us that they cannot do, which only Jesus can do for us. So he gives Martha a theological lesson here for whatever the reason is. Now we get the next 10 verses and we have the same statement from Martha's sister, but a very different response She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. It's an entirely different response for Mary than for Martha. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, there were a group of cynics in there, Just I'm, I used to be really cynical like this too. And the cynic said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So now Mary comes and says, Jesus, if only. And Jesus responds very differently. He responds quite differently. This time he shows his effective thunderous love. This is, Stott calls this his thunderous love. Now we like this love. We do. In our culture, this is the love that we, that we bank on, that we put all of our faith in, that we like. This is the feelings love. This is the I'm so glad to be alive love. It's also the love that lets us down occasionally. Can I get an amen there? Yeah. Some of us who are in the wake of that kind of love letting us down. But this is the love generally that we're talking about, the feelings-based love the affective love, but Jesus loves us both ways. He has a love that's both thunderous and jealous. He loves us jealously, but he also loves us with great desire. His heart longs for us, so much so that he gave everything for us. He went to the cross. God's love is a true love. It's it's a true love because it's a love that thinks, understands, worries about what's best, and then it's a true love that is passionate and feels, it's affective. And true love also dies to itself. Jesus ultimately died because he loves us so that we might be given his righteousness and his justification so that we would be redeemed, so that we would eventually be glorified, so that we would become sons and daughters of God, so that we would be co-heirs with God. Many of us, myself included, we are worried at times, when we sin, that God has lost his affection for us. Because God does love us. He'll eventually confront us. He'll eventually discipline us. The Bible says that God disciplines those whom he loves. And when we're in the midst of that, and when we're in the wake, and and we're worried about our guilt, and our shame, and those things, we we tend to forget that, that God loves us affectively, even in the midst of that. Even while he's rebuking us and correcting us. He loves us with great passion. We need to know that we're still loved in spite of our sin. We are loved in spite of our sin. But it's a love that will console us and charge us. It's a love that will forgive us, but then it will instruct us. It doesn't just forgive us and send us on our merry way. It also instructs us. Remember in, earlier in John the woman who was caught in adultery is, is brought to Jesus. And they wanted to kill her. The, the religious Jews wanted to kill her. And eventually, they all figure out that they're not going to get their way if Jesus is going to lead this operation. And they all finally drop their stones and their sticks and everything and they walk away. And now it's just Jesus and this woman who was caught in adultery, which is an offense that you could be executed for. And he says, he says... No one's here to condemn you? And she says, apparently not. And he says, neither do I condemn you. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, now go and sin no more. He consoles and he forgives, but he also charges and instructs. He weeps for us, but he also commands us. True love, if you think about it, true love really is a little bit tickle and a little bit torture just depends on which one's going on at the time. With God, they're both always going on. Always. He loves us. Then we finally get to the raising of Lazarus. This would be the temporal raising of Lazarus illustrates the eternal resurrection of Jesus. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an order uh, an odor, for he has been in there four days. He's been dead for four days. If you've ever read the King James Version of this, I love this. It literally says that Martha says, uh, Jesus, uh, for the, uh, uh, by this time, surely he stinketh. I love that word stinketh. Don't you love that? See, now you have a new word with which to, to talk trash. You can go to the hockey game and go, he stinketh, okay? and It'll be awesome. It'll be an insult that nobody's ever heard before. Okay? She says, he's dead, Jesus. You can't open this up. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. He's, He's doing this for them, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus prays in front of all of these people because he wants to make sure they understand that this isn't going to be some kind of a show and then he's just on his merry way and maybe tomorrow if you come back again there will be another show, another miracle. He's praying because he wants people to believe. There's that word again, believe. The Greek word pistos, faith, trust, commit to, believe. Put your life in his conviction. That's why he, he wants to make sure that the raising is pointing to a bigger thing. The raising of Lazarus is pointing to a much bigger thing than just this interesting little show. And I want you to notice that Lazarus was still in his death clothes. You need to remember that. It's going to be very different when Jesus is raised. That's one, of the, that's one of the great details about the differences between chapter 11 and, and chapter 20. And I want you to also understand that those death clothes, the, 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 the linen strips and the spices and the aloe and the myrrh, that stuff literally weighed 50 to 75 pounds on every dead person. It, it, earlier in, in um, well, in, in uh, John chapter uh, 19, we're told that it was 75 pounds worth of this stuff that was put on Jesus. It's, it's like if you've ever played hockey, it's like you're a hockey goalie. You, goalies go out there with 50 pounds of equipment on them. And that wasn't even uh, as much as what Jesus had when he was buried. So when Lazarus walked out, uh, I'm hoping he was feeling a little bit better than when he was dead, but he had this, this weight on him as well. And so Jesus said, come on, go and take those clothes, those death clothes off of him. Get that stuff off of him. It's really, really interesting how that worked out. Lazarus had eluded death for now this was a raising this was a raising not the resurrection but it was a preview to the resurrection and then we look at the next nine verses and we see that the fate of Jesus is sealed sort of sort of many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him so many did believe I've mentioned this before. It's just shocking to me after watching this that not all of them believed. Why didn't all of them believe? Same reason that we we see God working in people's lives today and, and they're glad for that, but they still don't believe that God is necessarily behind what's happening. They got lucky or the stars got aligned or they worked hard enough, whatever that is. Many believed, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see what this is really about? It's about power. It's about the status quo. Jesus is turning everything upside down, or as some people say, he's turning it right side up. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a priest, the high priest that year, That verse 48, I want to go back to that. It's, it's true for many of us today. You know, Jesus loves us and he's died for us and he, he sends His spirit to live in us and to guide us and yet people see him as a complete threat. People are threatened by Jesus. They're threatened by the church. They're threatened by the Christian faith. And I think the reason primarily is because what he's really asking, he's saying, look, you need to give everything to me. You need to give your whole life to me. You need to submit everything to me. Paul says that we're going to be conformed to him in Romans. In other words, we don't just add Jesus to our life. He's not just another good idea that we, that we kind of stick in our pocket. You know, I call him pocket Jesus, pull him out whenever we think we need him and then put him away so that we can control, control Jesus. But he calls us wholly and completely to faithfully and fully commit to him. In other words, he's going to change our lives. We're going to experience serious and genuine transformation. And guess what? That change is going to be inconvenient at best. And it's going to be radical for some. And some of you look at that now through these, this lens that doesn't understand that and says, I, I don't want to be changed even inconveniently, let alone radically. But ultimately, it's to be conformed to him. And ultimately, that is what is best for us. Uh, there's an idea that some people float who mean well. I understand that. They mean well, but they float this idea that if you come to Jesus, your life really won't change. You'll just have the assurance of salvation. That's so naive. It's not true. Your life is going to change. You can't help but change and be transformed if the Spirit is living in you. And I get it. That's a big ask. That is a huge ask. I remember when I was wrestling with this myself when I was 27 years old, and I'm thinking, this doesn't sound that great to me. I kind of like the way things are. I'm in charge. I'm the captain of my ship. I'm sitting on the throne. Then I found it was worth it. And, and it is worth it. And not because I say so, but because God says so. And there's evidence of that everywhere. Jesus says if we are to come after him, we're going to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow. Everyone needs to deny themselves in order to follow Jesus. That's universal. Taking up the cross is universal as well, but that has a unique aspect to it in that each of us are going to have a different cross that we're going to have to bear. All of us will have a cross to bear, though, just like Jesus did. See, we don't add them to our life. We submit, and if we do, like I said, Romans says, we become sons and daughters of God, and we are co-heirs with Jesus. Now turn to, Ro- to uh, John chapter 20. Here's the real resurrection. So Jesus has previewed the resurrection. He's taught on the resurrection. He raised Lazarus, but Lazarus is going to die again. He came out with his grave clothes on. He's going to go back in a tomb someday with grave clothes on again. But now here's Jesus. We, we read <clears throat> Friday night we read John 18 and 19, the story of the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, and he's been buried now. Now, on the first day of the week, so he's been in the tomb for three days, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Historians, not theologians, but historians, some who are Christians, some who are not, confirmed that this stone was probably in the neighborhood of 4,000 pounds, just to let you know. So one person isn't going to move this stone. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I personally find a little bit of humor in, in these verses here. Because if you know, if you know, the other disciple is the one writing this account. <laughs> it's John, the one Jesus loved, the one who outran Peter <laughs> to the tomb. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. So the grave clothes are there, 75 pounds worth. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. This is interesting. I, I, don't, I, don't pre- I, I took Greek in seminary, and I don't pretend to understand it the way real Greek scholars do. I can do word studies. I'm good at that. But I've read where the, the, the real Greek scholars say that the way the Greek is constructed here uh, talks about how um, when they looked at the linens lying there, they were in the shape of a body. They weren't torn off. It's as if Jesus had wiggled his way out of the grave clothes without, without disturbing them in any way, shape, or form, but that he had neatly also folded up and put the face cloth over on, on the side. A long time ago, I, I actually did this. I went home and I had uh, Jackie wrap me in a bunch of ace bandages to see what would happen if I could do that. It, it's a miracle. Seriously, I know, it's goofy. I've done some goofy stuff. I get it. But I just wanted to know. Okay? You're laughing like I really didn't do it. Ask my wife. She's in the choir. Okay? Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and she saw and believed. For as of yet, they, they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. This was the biggest aha moment of their life. Oh! In three days, he's going to rise from the... Oh, okay, boom. It's like that moment in algebra when you suddenly get it, right? For some of you anyway, okay? Oh, got it, the aha moment. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the, uh, the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they asked her, they said to her, She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus once taught that, that his sheep know his voice because he's the shepherd. He just said Mary to her. She said, oh, it's you. It's not the gardener. It's you, Jesus. Jesus' sheep know his voice. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he he had said these things to her. You see there, Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to me, don't touch me. Go. It's interesting. Now watch what happens. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. I've always wondered about that too. The doors were locked. They were afraid of anybody getting in and suddenly, Peace be with you. Uh, might have been a little ironic. Oh. Okay. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. <clears throat> Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. Those of you that attend Redemption Arcadia regularly, you know that there's a uh, a liturgical process, a liturgy that we actually work our way through on most Sunday mornings. It includes adoration and confession and, and proclamation of the gospel and teaching from the word. And then at the end, we are sent. And the reason we're sent is because that's what Jesus does with his disciples. He sends us as he sends them here. He says, even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now watch this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, unless I touch Jesus, and place my hand into his side, <clears throat> I will never believe. Eight days later, his, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then, Thomas, then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. There's that word again. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Thomas believed. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is incredible what what, what goes on here. He tells tells the first person, Don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. Don't touch me. And then he tells Thomas, I want you to touch me. Why? What's, What's the difference? Well, with Mary, Mary had already believed. But what she wanted is what you and I want. We, we want this kingdom of God, which supposedly uh, Jesus ushered in and instigated. We want the completion now. We want all of this other stuff done. We want the trials and the tribulation and the challenges and the testing and the suffering and the hardship. We want that done, and we want the kingdom to come fully in its consummation. So she was clinging to Jesus saying, yeah, let's get this started now. He says, no, it can't start yet. There's other work yet to be done, but then Thomas comes. Thomas needed to be able to touch Jesus and see Jesus because he needed to believe. Mary believed, but Thomas still needed to be able to see Jesus and to touch him. So the touching has a different purpose each time. It's important for us to see that. that This is not an inconsistent Jesus, but it's rather Jesus doing what he needs to do in the context with each person. But then he says these magnificent words. He says, you're blessed. But even more blessed are those who are going to be sitting at Redemption Church Arcadia on April 5th, 2015 who believe now without seeing. We're even more blessed. We're more blessed than Thomas. Some of you are going, I'm smarter than Thomas. I know that. That may be true, but you're more blessed than Thomas too. And Thomas was with Jesus. This is what Jesus said Tells us. I also want you to notice that, that people went into the tomb. Nobody went into the tomb when Lazarus came out. When the stone was removed for Lazarus, the stone was moved so that Lazarus could come out. When the stone was moved for Jesus, certainly Jesus needed to get out, but He didn't necessarily need the stone moved. As we see, He can walk through locked doors. But what was really important was for all of the disciples to be able to go into the tomb and see that it was empty. The, the reason the stone was moved was so that people could get in and see that it was empty. And Jesus left his grave clothes behind. Lazarus still had on his grave clothes. He's going to die again. Lazarus eluded death. He cheated death for the time being. But Jesus defeats death. He defeats Satan, sin, hell, all of the things that we've been singing about this morning. He's victorious. He's victorious. And then John writes these words at the end of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is really important. John makes this point throughout. A lot of people see Jesus as their exemplar, their example, somebody to follow in terms of a pattern And Jesus does say I'm the way, but he's not saying that as, as, he's not saying, listen, you need to live your life exactly like me. No, he's the savior and there's a difference between being an exemplar and a savior. He's our savior. If you're you're saying that Jesus is just your example in life and you're just trying to do like Jesus did, okay, I really hope that somebody who's blind doesn't walk up to you because if you spit in the the dirt and make mud and put it on that blind person's eyes, there's going to be a problem, I think. And the blind person is not going to be able to see like Jesus. There are things that Jesus is able to do because he's God that we can't. Yes, we listen to his teaching and we, and we follow some of his examples, yes. But that's not the true life with Jesus. The true life with Jesus is that he is Savior. He's everything. And he demonstrates that through this event, the resurrection. This is why He goes. It's to make sure that we understand that what we're placing our faith in is real and that it changes everything. The resurrection is a real historical event with drastic meaning and consequences. And so it is true. Some of you are sitting there, okay, he's going to make the ask. It's true. Our message is believe in Jesus or die. That's the message. It's what says, it says in Scripture. That is our message. That's a hard message, isn't it? That's a tough message. That's a challenging message. It's not follow Jesus and your life will get a little better. It's believe in Him or die. That's narrow and it's terrifying. But understand, it also demonstrates the depth of His love for us. A love that would go to the cross and take our punishment, take the wrath of God that was deserved for us. He would take that on Himself. He would become sin. And that His righteousness and His sinlessness and His beauty and His perfection would be imputed to us. And that we would stand before God and He wouldn't see us in our sin, but He would see Jesus in His righteousness and in His purity and in His holiness. And that we would be glorified. Looking at it that way, it's not not scary. It's compelling. When He told the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more, She's not thinking, well, I better do that or Jesus is out to get me. No, he just said, I don't condemn you either. She's going to sin no more out of, a, out of a loving response to somebody who loved her first with everything. The challenge with the resurrection is that in our modern sophistication and discomfort, we have so many alternative explanations and understandings of the resurrection. People say it's a metaphor, it's a myth, it's a legend. But, but historical rigorous historical research, by the way, by non-believers, non-Christians, have verified that those versions of the resurrection are wrong, that the resurrection is actually real. And you say, well, why don't those historians then believe in Jesus? Some of them do. Some of them actually come to faith as a result of their, of their investigation. Others are what I would call John chapter 11 non-believers. They go, yeah, he did, but I still, I, I still can't get on board. So here's what we need to understand. The resurrection is not just a sweet story of new beginnings or of second chances or of making the ugly beautiful. And it's not a metaphor of turning failure into triumph. Other, religious, uh, other religions and philosophies and worldviews and, and schools of thought talk about the afterlife as a better place or as the great light or as bliss or or Nothing. They talk about it as nothing if they're nihilists. All sorts of other speculations, but only Christianity has this resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. We're the only ones. And you might say, well, that's because it's a really bad idea. No, it's a really good idea, and it's unique, and it's the only one. And the reason is because we're not headed towards bliss or the great light or to nothing, but we are headed towards restoration of the created order. That's what the resurrection of Jesus is going to do for us. And when he comes again, he's going to restore everything into its perfection with the new Jerusalem. And that's what we have to look forward to. So the resurrection is actually how we find fulfillment in life and purpose and meaning. It's, it, it, all of those things that we've been searching for in life, all the big questions, it's found in Jesus in the resurrection and in the anticipated restoration of the created order. Everything the world promises but never delivers, we find in Jesus in the resurrection. He calls us and he loves us. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed, and that changes everything. We're going to continue to sing about that and celebrate that. I'm going to pray, and Cody and the musicians and the the choir are going to come back up. And we're going to keep singing and Cody's going to lead us into our time of communion and reflection. Lord God, we are thankful that you sent your son to live this life, to die this death and to be raised to new life so that we might have resurrection as well. So that we might look forward to the restoration of all things. So that we might enjoy redemption now. So that we might be your sons and daughters now. God, we thank you for that. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would move in us, that we would be compelled, that we would be even driven to you and your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen.